I had the opportunity to meet Dave Harding in the process of being uh, uh, examined for the position of associate pastor here at Church of the Atonement. And over the last 15 years, I've gotten to know David through a lot of projects, a lot of activities, and really come to see that he and I share a lot of the same interests and values. I think I would be correct in speaking for all of you in saying that if you know Dave Harding, you know that he has a passion for evangelism, sharing the gospel, the good news with the people at home as well as people around the world. And right alongside that passion is likewise the passion of concern for Christians who are suffering around the world. It's in that, uh, it's out of that uh, compassion and passion of David Harding's that he is in, he was involved and uh, I think continuing is involved in an organization known as the International Christian Concerns that looks out for Christians who are suffering at various places in the world. He introduced us to that organization. And so it's our privilege today to have with us Phil Sabella, who is the Church Relations Director for the International Christian Concerns. And we are welcoming you today and glad that you could be with us and looking forward to your opening the Word of God to us and at the same time telling us of what's going on in the world about which we need to be concerned. God bless. Thanks so much. God bless you. Well, it is an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, we are here in the first service, and then we got to share a little bit with the youth group as well during Sunday school, and now you guys are here, and I would like to personally thank you today uh, for coming to church. You could have been a million other places today. You could have been out playing golf, you could have been fishing, but you chose to be here. Women are like, but what about us? You could have been shopping. But you chose to be here, and uh, I know that God is going to richly bless you uh, because you chose to be here. So thank you so much. Before we jump into the Word, I want to give you guys a little bit of background. Now, I walk around a lot. Is that okay with you guys? In the first service, they told me to watch out for the steps because I might fall. That would be really memorable. Um, I would remember this church forever after that. Uh, so my name is Phil, and I am the Church Relations Director for International Christian Concern. I was born in, uh, in Pennsylvania to a, uh, a pastor and his wife, my mom and dad, they were pastors, of a small church in central Pennsylvania. When I was eight years old, my parents, uh, they, they went to bed, and that night they both had the exact same dream. They had a dream that there was a man standing on top of a mountain in the Czech Republic, and he was, he was praying to a God that he didn't understand and didn't know. And he said to God these words, Please send someone so I can know truth. So they both woke up, both had the exact same dream that night. Both woke up and they didn't tell each other about the dream at all. In fact, they didn't even know where the Czech Republic was. My dad had to go and get an encyclopedia. This was pre-computer, pre-internet age. Uh, get an encyclopedia and look it up. He found out the Czech Republic was a communist nation uh, and, you know, blah, 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 the history. So they, he decided not to tell my mom. And my mom decided not to tell my dad. And so, uh, so they went throughout the whole week. When they got to the end of the week, my dad, this, this passion inside of him was just burning. He couldn't consume it anymore. And so he told my mom, he said, Sherry, you'll never believe what happened. I had this dream the other night. And he told her the story, and she began to cry. And she's like, I had that exact same dream. 
And so it, they, it wasn't rocket science. They kind of understood what they had to do. And so they decided to be missionaries to the Czech Republic. So when I was eight years old, they sold everything, including my stuff, which I still am angry about. Uh, they sold everything, and we moved to the Czech Republic. We landed there in 1996. The, the uh, curtain had just fallen. And uh, we, we landed with nobody there, no, no contacts, no house to live in. We lived in a uh, hotel for about a month until my parents were able to find a house, moved into the house. And my parents are still there to this day. They plant churches around the, uh, the Czech Republic, and, and they're, they're excited doing that. So I, I, I come from a ministry background. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I, I know what church is like. In fact, when I was 16 years old, I, I decided that I was going to turn my back on God, and I started living life the way I wanted to live life. I was mad at God because He called me to this weird country where people didn't look like me, they didn't smell like me, they didn't talk like me, and, and I didn't see my grandparents, I, I didn't have any friends, and, and I was angry at God. And so I decided that I didn't want to follow a mean, nasty God. So when I was 16, I turned my back on God. And from 16 to 18, I lived my life the way I, see, I saw fit. And it was, I was 18, and I had a, a very distinct change in my life. Has anybody here ever been to the Czech Republic before? Anybody? Yes. Wow, there's a lot more. The, the other service, people are like, I don't even know where this at. That's good. So it was Czech Republic in, in February, and if you've ever been to Czech Republic or Central Europe in the winter, you know that the sun comes up for about 30 seconds, and it goes back down for 42 hours, you know, and it's just this constant thing. It's dark, and it's nasty and gloomy, and people are depressed, and, and it's just not a good time to be alive in Central Europe. And I remember I was sitting at a bus stop in February, and I was arguing with God, it's kind, and it's kind of funny how... When you decide you don't believe in God, you still argue with that thing that you don't believe in. You know what I mean? It's kind of weird. And so I was arguing with God over and over. You're a mean God. You're a nasty God. I don't like you very much. And I remember there's two distinct times in my life where God spoke to me. I I literally heard the voice of God two times in my life. This was one. He told me to be quiet. And he said, Phil, I want you to look at the faces of the people that drive by you in those buses. And so I began to watch face after face after face went by. And I realized that they looked how I felt on the inside. Empty, depressed, and hopeless. And God told me, He said, Phil, you know what? If you, if you look at these faces, I want you to understand that the majority of these people in these buses are going to hell because nobody's ever told them about Jesus Christ. Tell them about me. And God changed my life in that moment. I rededicated my life to God. I decided to go to Bible college, so I did that. I went to Bible college, graduated after four years, and I became an associate pastor of a church in uh, in New Jersey. Had some great times there. God really moved in some awesome ways. I chased after unsafe people specifically. I had this evangelistic call on my life, and, and I did that. Then God called us to uh, us. I say my us, uh, my wife and I, to uh, to Maryland, and so we uh, pastored in a church in Bowie, Maryland, for three years. And uh, and God did some great things there, and really chased after unsafe people. But there was this time in January of last year where we felt like God was going to do something, but we didn't know what He was going to do. Have you ever been there before, where you know that God is forming something in your life? He's He's moving, but you just don't know what that thing is. And so uh, as a church, every year, uh, the church that I was on staff on, we fasted for the entire month of January. Are there any Italians in here by any chance? Yes. Familia. I love you guys. For an Italian to fast for a month was, was, was torture because we invented food. 
It's an obvious fact. The Italians invented food, and to say you can't eat, it was bad. And so we fasted, and I did it somehow. By the grace of God, I was able to do it. And during that time, we were just praying and seeking the face of God. And, and I ended the fast thinking, this is it. This is the last day. God is going to tell me what to do. And guess what? I didn't hear anything. And I was frustrated. So we went into February, and it was on February 15th. I had another life-changing moment. I was sitting on my couch in, in our apartment watching the news, and I watched as 21 of our brothers were marched out onto a beach wearing orange jumpsuits. They were made to kneel down on the sand, and ISIS beheaded them because they were Christians. Do you guys remember seeing that on the news? That changed my life. I saw that and I thought, you know, Phil, if I, if I am a missionary kid, a pastor's kid, if I have this background and I don't know the depths of persecution, how can I expect the average church person to know it as well? And so I began to look and pursue this. And I found an organization called International Christian Concern. I found a position that I wasn't qualified for. I applied for that position. And two months later, I was working at International Christian Concern. And now I'm here to tell you and to challenge you to raise your voice on behalf of the persecuted church. We can no longer be silent. It's time for us as a congregation to raise our voices. So if you would, please turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, verses 8 through 9. It reads like this, Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Last year, at about June, a man and his wife, his name is Pastor Moses, and he was a pastor of a small congregation in southern India. Pastor Moses and his wife held prayer meetings on a regular basis where people who were sick or, or needed help would come to them and, and they would pray for them and, and they saw healings and they saw many, many conversions within the Hindu community. Well, one night, Pastor Moses and his wife had just finished a prayer meeting and everybody had left and they decided that it was time to go to bed so they, they shut the lights off and they got into bed. In the middle of the night, they heard a knock on the door. So they opened the door, thinking it was somebody else in the neighborhood who needed prayer, because that's always what happened. When they opened the door, they were shocked to see a group of teenage Hindu radicals who burst into their house and they said, you have two options, convert to Hinduism or die. Pastor Moses and his wife said, you're going to have to kill us because we will never turn our backs on Jesus. The teenager stabbed Pastor Moses in the back 15 times. During the process, his wife tried to get up and pull the attackers off of him, but they turned and stabbed her in the head twice, left them for dead. In some miraculous way, Pastor Moses' wife survived the attack. We don't know how it happened. She should have died. She was able to crawl to a neighbor who had a cell phone. That neighbor called a friend who was a Christian in America, and that American person contacted ICC. International Christian Concern. We were able to get into that village and pull Pastor Moses and his wife out. We put him in emergency care. We put him to, into a hospital that had really good uh, emergency care facilities. And they were able to save his life. The doctors were shocked because at each, 15, each of the 15 stabs missed a vital organ each time. 
each time. Pastor Moses, a year later, has made a complete recovery. Completely healed. Able to walk, no side effects. And guess what? He still lives in the same village. And he still holds the same prayer meetings every single night. And they are still seeing countless people saved and healed. And God is doing a great work simply because he refused to turn his back on Jesus Christ. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. Speak up, congregation, for the persecuted church. What is persecution? I just want to break this down a little bit because we use this word persecution, but it's kind of a broad term and uh, it's, it's very rarely broken down. So there are three forms of persecution in this world. The first form that we know of that is very well known is communism. You guys know about, about communism. Countries that are, are persecuting Christians that are communists are countries like North Korea, uh, China, and, uh, and Vietnam area. Those are communist nations that persecute Christians. Another one, probably the w- most well-known um, form of persecution comes from Islam. Uh, groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab. These are all uh, Islamic extremist groups that persecute Christians. And the third one is a little bit less known. It's called uh, cultural threats. Now, we, we hear of this and we can think of uh, extreme, extreme Hinduism, uh, Buddhism in Myanmar, but there's one in, in Mexico that we don't hear about very often. In fact, I would be surprised if more than a dozen of you have heard about this before. But in southern Mexico, in Chiapas, there's a group called Santa Muerte. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. But it's a sect of, and I'm going to use this term lightly, Christianity. It's, it's, a, it's a pagan twist on Christianity where they, they get this skeleton and they put a bride's dress on it. And they parade it into the town and everybody worships it. It's the cartel's God. It's basically the God of death. And they pray to this God for protection when they go out to kill somebody. And so they come to the Christians and say, you know, you need to pay a tax to the town to let us have these drunken parties where we worship this this demonic God. And the Christians say, no way, not going to happen. And so they're persecuted. They're beaten up. They're kicked out of the village. Some of them are killed. And so this is a very strong sense of persecution that is happening in our own backyard. So who are we? Who is International Christian Concern? International Christian Concern is like a bridge that connects the persecuted church over here to the free church in the West over here. This is how it works. So say ISIS goes into a town in in Iraq and they, they look for a Christian family. What happens is, is then they'll, they'll find these Christian families and a lot of times they'll kill the father. Because if the father is dead, then there's no breadwinner anymore. And so they'll, they'll kill the father and they'll leave the, the wife and children alone. Their only crime is that they're Christians. That's, that's all that they did. That's the only thing that they did wrong. So our staff in Iraq will find these people, will say, hey, this, this happened. They'll send it back to ICC and say, you know, ISIS came in killed the dad, left the mom and five children. The mom and five children have no place to go, no food, no help, no aid, no other family. Can you help them? We take that information and we go to the churches, kind of like what we're doing today. We tell you guys stories. We present you guys with prayer requests. And uh, we ask for you guys to rally up behind your brothers and sisters and supply them with aid. So then we will take that aid, take that prayer, take that political pressure... And we will send it back to the persecuted 
to help them in their daily lives. Uh, we do this in three different ways. The first way is advocacy. Uh, we work very heavily on, on Capitol Hill. Now, you guys had a, a person, I believe, who was part of your church a while ago, uh, Andrew and Noreen Brunson. Some of you guys know this name. So Andrew and Noreen Brunson are American missionaries who are living in Turkey. One day they came back to their house and they found a note on their door that said, uh, please take your passports and, and go to the local police department. They thought it was a visa thing because they'd been trying to get their visas for quite some time and they thought it was a visa recognition. So they went to the, the police office. When they arrived at the police office, the police confiscated their passports and threw them in jail. There was no reason, no charges were pressed, just you are now free and now you are in jail. Just like that, boom. So they find themselves in jail. Little did they know that the fact that they were working with an organizer or a, a group of people called the Kurds put them on the terrorist watch list. Now, I don't know if you guys know the tension in Turkey, but a while ago they had a coup uh, where they tried to overthrow the government. The, the people that were kind of in charge of that were the Kurds. And so when, when the, the coup was shot down, the Kurds were deemed terrorist organizations. And anybody who worked with them was deemed a terrorist as well. And so in a crackdown, the government, the Turkish government, decided to go to the international aid workers that were working with the Kurds and arrest them. No charges, just you are now in jail. Uh, in jail, they were not allowed to have any representation, any legal representation. They were not allowed to uh, have any visitors or any guests. They were not allowed to have spare clothes or, or, or their reading glasses or their Bibles. And so your pastor, actually I was talking with him on the phone before I came here, your pastor told me about this story, and I talked to our advocacy department about it. Our advocacy department got in touch with our state department and the, uh, the uh, branch that deals with religious freedom, and they didn't even know that this had happened. So they investigated it, found out that the, uh, the embassy kind of had an idea, but they didn't have all the details, and so they looked into it. Next thing you know, that they, we find out that, yes, Andrew and Noreen have been arrested. They have been arrested on these false charges of potential terrorism. They are being held without legal representation, which is against the Constitution of Turkey. And so the American embassy began to put pressure on the government. A little bit, a little while ago, Noreen, Noreen was released. Thank God she was released. No, no reason given, just one day she's in jail, next day she's released. Unfortunately, Andrew is still in prison. But because of the international pressure that has been placed on the government, he has been allowed uh, legal representation, which is a huge answer to prayer. He's been allowed to have a Bible, which, by the way, they don't know about, so don't broadcast that on Facebook. It was kind of smuggled into him. Um, the second thing, he, the third thing he was allowed to have was his reading glasses. He also got a fresh pair of clothes. And so we're slowly beginning to see positive things happen in this case. And we're praying, and we ask that you guys as well, you pray, that Andrew will be released by Christmas. We pray that he's released today, but by Christmas. Uh, we did, uh, I did bring a bunch of letters uh, that are in the back visitor center. It's a template of a letter that we're asking all of his friends and his families to, uh, to fill out and to send to embassies uh, in Turkey and officials in Turkey as well. The letter is out there. There's a template. If you would like, just grab one. All you need to do is put your name in there, and then there's addresses to which you can send it. So please do that. That will put extra pressure on the Turkish government and, uh, and hopefully get him released as soon as possible. So that's what we work on in the advocacy side. 
The other side is uh, the awareness side. We have over 20 million followers on social media. So think of it like this. If you put 20 million of those people in one, uh, one stadium and had them all yell at the same time, that's a very loud noise, right? And so that's what we do. We get those 20 million voices and we have them all yell at the same time at certain governments or at certain people to try to uh, put pressure on them. Did you know that elections can be swayed by social media? We saw that happen very recently, didn't we? Elections can be swayed. Governments can be swayed. Politicians can be swayed by social media. And so we have a very strong following uh, on Facebook and Twitter and, and on LinkedIn as well. The other thing that we do, we deal heavily with assistance. We give tangible aid to the persecuted. And I want to give you guys two quick stories of where we gave tangible assistance. And then I want to finish with an action, if that's okay with you. So the first thing that we did uh, was, was with uh, a, a, a pair of sisters in South Asia. So these two sisters are called Emma and Sarah. Emma and Sarah were 13 and 15 years old. They attended the equivalent of public high school in their area. And uh, it was a very strong Muslim uh, school. So these two girls had a very beautiful singing voice. They were, their, their teacher said that they were angelic in their voices. Very beautiful singing voices. And each day in Islamic schools, they start the day off with the call to prayer. Now, I don't know if you are familiar with the call of prayer, but in the call of prayer, it, it makes the declaration that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Now, if you say that three times, you are automatically converted to Islam. doesn't matter what you think. If you say it, you are now Muslim. And so in this song, it is quoted three times. Now, these two Christian girls got up in front of the whole school and sang the call to prayer. They didn't know what they were singing. They were just singing a song that their teacher asked them to sing. It just so happened that there was an imam or a Islamic pastor, very loosely termed there, but kind of like a pastor, sitting in the, in the audience. And he knew that these two Christian girls were Christians, and they just said this thing three times. And so he declared that, hey, they're now Muslim girls. So he got up, went to their parents, knocked on their door, and said, I would just like you to know that we are taking your girls from you because they are now Muslims. We're going to be moving them to another village, and they're going to be raised by Muslim parents. Imagine that happening here. Imagine your pastor going to a Christmas pageant at school and seeing an atheist girl singing a song where she declares Jesus is Lord and telling her parents they're going to take him away. It's ridiculous, isn't it? it, just, it it's just ridiculous. But that's what happens in these countries. And so when ICC found out about this, we went to the country, immediately went to their house. We said, pack your bags, get everything that you can carry. We are going to transport you to another village. We're going to give you a house. We're going to give you food. We're going to give you clothing and shelter and aid. And we're going to help you get back on on your feet. So that's exactly what we did. We took them out of the village, took them out of danger, and we placed them in a Christian village where they can now live and operate freely and they're doing very well as as of today they are doing very well the girls are doing well they're growing and things are are good for them so that's one thing that we did another story that we have and and we're currently working on it that was a past story this one is a current one now when isis invaded iraq they set up a stronghold in a country in in a city called mosul have you guys ever heard of the city mosul yes and so they, they went into the city of Mosul and they, they completely leveled anything that had any Christian influence. So houses, churches, 
Some of these Christians had been living there since 400 A.D. That's how long their families had been in these towns. So ISIS comes in and they destroy everything. And then they go from house to house and they paint that Nazarene sign. You guys, Some of you guys saw that. It was all over the news a long time ago on their houses to declare that this is a Christian house. They then went door to door giving Christians three options. Convert to Islam, pay a tax, or die. Now that tax was somewhere, is sometimes somewhere in, in, the, in the range of 60 to 80 percent of your income. We found 10 families who decided that, you know what, my entire life is here. I think we're just going to try to pay this tax. This tax is called a jizya, for those of you who don't know. Jizya under Sharia law, the, it requires Christian, non-Muslims to pay this. And so they decided that they were going to pay this tax. So month after month after month they paid this tax. Until ISIS began to feel a little bit of international pressure. Forces began to close in on them a little bit and they began to get scared. And so they went to these Christians and said, you know, you're, you're we'll say 60% tax. That's not enough anymore. You're going to have to pay us 90% of your income just to live in your house. So the Christians decided, you know what, we can't afford to do this. We can't do it at all. We don't want to die, obviously, because if we don't do it, they'll kill us. And if we don't convert to Islam, we're going to die. And so... They decided that they were going to pack up all of their belongings, which was nothing, and move to a refugee camp that was about 60 miles north in Erbil, a UN, north, uh, UN uh, refugee camp. So when they got to the refugee camp, they were expecting to find food, shade, and uh, food, aid, and shelter. But when they got there, they found that Muslims that were the refugees were persecuting them just as badly as ISIS. Christians would go to the well or to the, the watering place, and the Muslims would forbid them from drinking because Christians are unclean. And if a Christian touches the water, the Muslims can't drink it. They were forbidden from eating in the same places because they're unclean. They were forbidden from living within the compounds of the refugee camp because they're unclean. And so they were forced to live outside in tarp tents. When we found out about this, when ICC found out about this, we met with the families and we said, you know, what, what is your need? What do you need? They said, we need a house to live in and we need protection from the Muslims outside. So we met with a local church, a Coptic church, and we asked them if they would allow these people to live in their, their gated yard, and they said, of course, no problem, let them live there. Then we decided that we were going to construct for them houses. We actually went in and we built ten houses for these ten families. They're, they're, they look a little bit like trailers, like that you would see here in the States, only they don't have wheels. But they are four walls, they have a roof over their head, they have running water, indoor plumbing. We also gave them food and aid to last them for the year. As well, we just finished that project, and as we were finishing it, we, we did the last little bit of it. The the one of the family, the heads of the family, came to us and said, "Listen, there's 38 other families who are living on the other side of the camp, who have gone through the exact same thing as we are. They don't have food, they don't have water, and they're living in tents. And winter is coming. If you have ever been in the desert in winter, it's brutally cold, brutally cold. Can you help them? What do you say to that? No, we can't help you." course we said of course we will help you tell us what you need and we will do it so they told us that they need 38 houses and so we were currently on a campaign to raise the funds to build these people 38 houses so that we can get them out of the tents and into four walled buildings and this is just what we do at icc why do we do what we do why do we go to the ends of the earth to look for persecuted christians to make sure that their their needs are met when Paul was riding into Damascus, he was knocked off a horse. And Jesus appeared to him and said, Paul, Paul, 
Why are you persecuting my people? He didn't say that. He said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting Jesus? We do what we do because when the body of Christ is raped, is tortured, is beheaded, Jesus is tortured, raped, and beheaded. We do what we do because they are us and we are them. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when they are kicked out of their towns and tortured and beheaded, we are kicked out of our towns and tortured and beheaded. We do what we do because if we don't, if we the church don't do anything, then who else will? The UN isn't going to help them. They're not going to do a thing for persecuted Christians. We do what we do because we are commanded by our Father in heaven. Pray for the persecuted as if you were being persecuted yourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, the church of God is growing at an exponential rate. We don't see it here in the U.S. because we live in this weird bubble. 75% of Christians in this world live in a persecuted region. You are the minority. We live in a bubble where we look at the news and we see this happening and we think, woe is me, the church is falling apart, there's nothing good happening. That's a lie. The church is alive and well and it is growing at an astounding rate. We have story upon story upon story of people going to sleep at night and a man in white visits them in their dreams. And they wake up and they're like, this is crazy. And they begin to investigate it. And they find out that this man was Jesus. And they find Jesus. Now, I talk to Americans and they're like, you know, I don't really know all about that. That seems a little bit mystical with the dreams and everything. But you have to understand that people living in the desert, do they have TV? No. Do they have a news connection? No. Do they have cell phones? No. Their culture is very much preoccupied and very much uh, immersed in visions and in dreams. And we know that God communicates through culture. God communicates in ways that people will understand. And so when people tell us, when Muslims tell us, when desert people tell us that Jesus showed up to them in dream, we believe it. Because sometimes God does irrational things to talk to people. We hear story upon story of Muslims and Hindus and communists coming to Christ like never before. The Word of God tells us that when Jesus comes back, we will all be in heaven and there will be thousands and thousands of people standing there who have been beheaded, who have been persecuted. And I can't help but believe there are going to be converts in those groups. People who were once Muslims, people who were once Hindus, who saw the pain and frustrations that the church went through, saw that they refused to turn their backs on their beliefs and turn to Christianity because they knew the truth. Lastly, I, I met recently, I was in Egypt, and I met with a pastor there of a, of a very large church. And he said that his church was growing. Imagine having a church in a persecuted nation, and it's growing, it's exploding. They're under constant uh, surveillance by the government. And I asked him, I said, Pastor, how do you grow such a large church in such a hostile environment? And he laughed at me and he said, Phil, ISIS is the evangelist and I baptize the converts. 
And I looked at him and I was like, I have no idea what that means. I'm sorry, I have absolutely no idea what that means. He said, ISIS goes into these towns and he gets people who are nominal Muslims. They get nominal Muslims and they say, listen, under Sharia law, you have to kill your Christian neighbor. Here's a sword, go do it. And they're like, I don't want to kill my Christian neighbor. I like him. He's a nice person. But ISIS says, but Muhammad tells you to kill it, to slay the infidel. You have to kill him. And the moderate Muslim says, I'm not going to kill my Christian over here, my, my neighbor. I'm not because he's a good person. Then they begin to think, you know, what kind of a God would de- command that I kill my neighbor? That doesn't make sense to me. They begin to talk to their Christian neighbor and their Christian neighbor introduces to them, them to a God who, who, who loves them. Did you know that love is never mentioned once in the Quran? Never once. The word love is not there. And so they're introduced to this God who loves them, who wants the best for them, who gives them a guarantee of heaven after death, which is a huge thing for Muslims. And they begin to question this God and this Jesus, and they begin to compare it to, uh, to Muhammad and, and, and to Allah, and they begin to find that Jesus seems true. And then all of a sudden, guess what? Jesus shows up in a dream and says, it's true. They wake up, they go to their Christian neighbor and say, this guy showed up, what's going on? And their neighbor says, that's Jesus. Next thing you know, this guy is saved. And it all started because ISIS told him to kill his neighbor. We're seeing this over and over and over. Congregation, I challenge you. Speak up for the persecuted church. When Solomon uses that word, speak up, the Hebrew, or the, the, the Hebrew word is, it means to loosen. It's kind of like, this is picture in your head, you shoot WD-40 into your jaw and it's like, ah, uh, you know, it loosens your jaw. Speak! Speak! God gave you a voice to speak. So speak up for the persecuted church. How do you speak up for the church? Post about it on social media. Follow ICC on social media. If we post something, repost it. Another thing you can do is write letters to the Turkish government on behalf of the Brunson. Speak up on their behalf. Another thing you can do is call your elected officials. Did you know that you can call them? You may not have voted for them. It doesn't matter. You can call them and let them know that you are mad because they're not doing anything for the persecuted church. Most importantly of all, you can speak up in prayer. I ask you, congregation, to daily pray for the persecuted church. Daily pray. Because prayer works. Prayer is a mighty tool. And so I challenge you today, ladies and gentlemen, speak up for the persecuted church. Remember them in your prayers. And remember that God is moving. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you today. God, we worship you because you are still in control. Lord, when we look to the news and we look to the world around us, it's so easy for us to think that you are losing control, but we believe that you are still the Lion of Judah, that you are still in control, and that this is all part of your plan. Father, we pray that you would lift up the persecuted church that your spirit would guide them, that you would guard their hearts and minds, and that you would protect them. I pray, God, for the souls of our enemies, that you would find them where they're at right now, that your spirit would invade the camps of Boko Haram, of Al-Shabaab and ISIS, and that you would begin to convert their leaders to Christianity. 
Lord, I pray that your spirit would move like a wildfire throughout the Middle East and North Africa and South Asia. And I pray, God, that you would revive this church in this country. Help us to be a beacon of light and help us to be fearless in our pursuit of justice. Lord, we give you the glory. We can't wait for you to come back. Help us to be the voice for the the voiceless. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.